Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. Wide World on Money FM 89.3. All right, we are going to uh, move now to COP28. As uh, you may know if you've been following uh, the news at all, it is happening in the United Arab Emirates. They are hosting this annual summit to try to tackle the contentious question of whether and how to use uh, and end the use of fossil fuels, uh, talking about climate change and, and what is going on around here. And we thought it would be uh, useful to have our good friend Professor Ben Horton come in and talk to us about his perspective about how that process is going, what he is seeing from the news reports uh, that he may either agree with or not disagree with. Ben, of course, is the director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore at NTU. We have him on often to talk about climate issues. Ben, good morning. Welcome to the studio. Morning. Great to have you with us. What are you seeing What are you seeing that you like or don't like so far from this uh, COP28 in Dubai? Um, before I answer that, can I can I come back to your previous point? Sure. Which one? <laughs> um, not all celebrities make bad politicians. Okay. Oh, that, so that's very true. Arnold Schwarzenegger was did wonders. Ran as a Republican, yeah. and he did wonders for Climate California. He commissioned the National Academy of Sciences to produce the first regional assessment of sea level rise hmm. for California and the states of Washington and Oregon. I have a letter from and signed by Arnold Schwarzenegger asking me to work for him in providing projections for those states. How nice, huh? Wonderful. Yeah. So some of them are doing a good thing. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, no, fair play. Schwarzenegger's <laughs> track record on climate was fantastic. But Fifth largest economy in the world, California. Yeah. But I think that gets to the point that if we're going to talk about COP28, for some reason, for some reason, climate is political. Mm. And that's as much a fault as climate scientists as it is the general public. We have become political. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, when an ice sheet melts, it doesn't have a conscience. <laughs> it doesn't have a political party. Yeah. It follows the laws of physics and it melts. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat mm. or a Republican, whether you're The Rock or Schwarzenegger. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about a melting ice sheet. But on that point, it is political in a way because Sultan Al-Jabbar, who currently holds the COP presidency, also leads the UAE's state oil company and asserted there's no science. That was his words. There's no science that indicates a phase out of fossil fuel is going to achieve the 1.5 degrees Celsius. So if anything has come out of COP28, fossil fueled industry is not going to go quietly into the long good night, is it? No, I mean, they have a vested interest. If we want to think about what section of the business community is most at risk from climate change, it's the petroleum industry. Mm. Mm. They are the ones that are going to be subject eventually to legislation. They are the ones that are currently subject to legal action for their misleading of the public and polluting of the atmosphere. And so, although... I completely agree that you must have all stakeholders round the table to deal with climate change. It does seem to anybody that it seems slightly strange that you're holding that could be conceived one of the most important global meetings dealing with the phase out of fossil fuels in a fossil fuel country led by somebody who owns a fossil fuel company. And so, of course... He's going to say something like that. Yeah. 
Wouldn't you? It was interesting. Yeah. Before the conference started too, there was this leaked memo from uh, officials in Dubai saying, hey, guys, this is a great opportunity for us to meet on the sidelines to secure future fossil fuel contracts. And it was quite embarrassing, right, for yeah. them. But that, uh, the that, that unfortunately, certain elements of human nature about greed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my perspective of COP28 is that, well, if you needed a if you knew about the problems of climate change, what you'd want is a conference of parties where governments and business leaders and activists are all meeting together. You know, hindsight's great. You've got great 2020 vision. We have to make the most out of these meetings because they're so very, very crucial. But then also, and this is where the power of journalism and the media comes in, we must be critical about these things. So are you saying it's a leak? It's a good thing because then we know understandably, that this is what UAE wants. They've got a lot of business leaders coming in. They want to preserve their country's wealth. And my thoughts are that that they're not – that there aren't enough – it's a climate conference and there aren't enough scientists there. Mm. So, I mean, you know, if we just look at some of the facts, there are approximately 100,000 people going to COP28. And it's a climate conference. Mm -hmm. 0.05%. Are scientists. They're actual people that and then, you get and then, invited to these things? Yeah, so we get invited to them. Um, and, you know, I thought long and hard about whether to go. I thought it was better. So we, you have a limited number of seats at the table. I mean, that 100,000 is capped, and there are different zones that you can go to. So the Earth Observatory of Singapore, we had some seats at the table, but what, who we sent were community engagement people. One of the strengths of the Earth Observatory of Singapore has been changing high school curriculum here in Singapore. So way back, maybe 10 or so years ago, we invested a lot of time, effort, and money in developing curriculum for the high school kids in Singapore to understand about climate change, sustainability, how the Earth works. We worked with teachers. So we have all these packages. So what we're doing is now taking this curriculum to COP28. So young people from different countries, we've translated it into different languages, can learn about the curriculum we developed here in Singapore. The second thing that the Earth Observatory of Singapore is very strong on is providing a voice for the developing countries around Singapore, providing information on what works locally, local problems, local solutions. So again, giving that voice rather than another climate scientist talking. Mm. And so we just thought it was better face that we had some young people going mm. and try and provide the youth. And they've gone for the second week, which is now the second week starting, which is all about the youth. But Ben, you're, you're such a passionate um, you're such a passionate spokesperson about this. You know, the times we've had you on the show over the years, you know, your your voice is always so clear and strong and unequivocal on what the challenge is and what needs to be done and, and what the risks are if something isn't done. I, I see that as like that would have been such a great forum for you to be in. Um, well, I'm not saying, uh, well, I'm, I'm not very pleased to hear, decision, you, hear you say that. Like, you're I mean, just so well, you know. But uh, uh, as I said, you 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 may you think about what's the better use of your time, uh, and what's the better use of carbon, you know, those type of things, and you know. So I mean, Singapore, do you have to go fly all the way? to the Middle East Mm. to deliver your message. Mm. 
I'm sat here. What was the carbon footprint of me coming here? Very little compared to flying over there. And then Singapore hosted the ASEAN Sweden Innovation uh, Science Week. So we had the leaders of Wallenberg, Volvo, H&M, IKEA. And I was able to deliver a message to those people about climate and the urgency. We had... Dame Gladden, who is the head of UK Innovations visiting Singapore last week. I spent time with her thinking about how the UK and Singapore could innovate on climate change. One of the great things about Singapore is that it's a stop-off destination Mm. for some real change makers. Mm. And so you don't really need to go anywhere. You can just sit here and Mm. wait for them to come to you. You can be more impactful in this environment than going to... Yeah, and there are other scientists from Singapore there. Leanne Pingao, Winston Chow, they're there delivering the science message. And I thought, you know, better placed being here, um, using my time, using our seats for young people to go and deliver something that EOS can deliver uniquely, Mm. that no one else can. Winston can deliver a message on the urgency of climate change like me, but I don't think anyone like Laurie and Chardot can deliver the message about the importance of the voice of the youth Mm. in Singapore. That's the positive bit about voices. Let's do the depressing part. According to The Guardian, there are 2,456 fossil fuel lobbyists there, which is four (laughs) times higher than the number registered in Egypt. As you will know, Ben, not a single G20 country has policies in place that are currently consistent with the 1.5 degrees target. You know the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak actually went backwards late uh, recently, stepped back on that. Where are you with COP28? Half full, half empty? Where can we be on this? Um, well, just by my very personality, I'm always half full. Mm. Um, climate change can lead you into spiralling despair because, mm. you know, if we think about it... Um, Every previous COP meeting has been a complete failure. Mm. So why would you think this is going to be any different? So the first COP meeting, COP1, was in 1995. The amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at that point was a unit known as uh, parts per million by volume, was 340 parts per million by volume. So since 1995 and the meeting in 2023, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere has increased 40%. Mm. But Paris felt like a positive turning point. Well, of course, there have been... Paris was an amazing turning point in a way because the Paris Agreement, so that was COP15 um, back in, um, uh, COP20 whatever, but in 2015. The thing about the Paris Agreement was two or three years prior to that, the scientific community were asked by policymakers, what is the tipping point in how the earth works? Mm. So basically, mm. how much do you need to increase global average temperatures before you, you set in motion tipping points which can, and I, I hate to throw this word out there, destroy civilization or life mm. on earth as we know it. And so I was part of mm. a community that was tasked by the National Science Foundation in the US and the um, and NERC in the UK to look at the tipping points of our polar ice sheets, so yeah. Greenland and Antarctica. So we basically, a group of people did models, a group of people did observations, went back through the geological record, and we came out with the, again, like, the, it's interesting, the earth, different systems have a approximately the same threshold. The Greenland ice sheet 
two degrees. Two degrees C above pre-industrial. So if you go above two degrees above pre-industrial, you set the wheels in motion that the ice sheet eventually collapses. There's nothing you can do it. You can sequester as much carbon as your heart's content. You've set the wheels in motion through a variety of feedback effects that the Greenland ice sheet goes. Antarctica, East Antarctica, very high elevation. We, cert- we don't really know what will eventually happen to that. But West Antarctica, so Greenland has about seven metres sea level rise in it. You raise it more than two degrees C, it's gone. Um, West Antarctica has about five metres within it. Its threshold is 1.5. So we then provided that information to policymakers and that's where the Paris Agreement comes out. And there are other parts of the Earth system, the survivability of corals, um, the ability for permafrost to maintain its methane, um, um, disturbances, which is like scares the living daylights out of me about the ocean conveyor, the ocean transport that transports heat from the tropics to the pole, make sure the tropics don't get too hot and make sure the poles don't freeze over. That conveyor has been running for about 120,000 years. The fact that the Earth's climate changes in the past is no comfort because we know you go back 120,000 years, temperatures were slightly warmer than today because the Earth was at a different orbit around the sun Mm. and we had horrific, horrific changes in temperature in the middle latitudes. So in northwestern Europe, North America, going across the Asian belt, you had drops in temperature of 10 to 20 degrees C within 20 years. The day after tomorrow... Is the, the feature film the movie, is, yeah. is not that far-fetched. Hmm. You're talking 10 to 20 years. So you have to think about... that. that so Paris was a movement forward where scientists were listened to. My problem, one of my problems with COP, and I just said there are no scientists there, well, none of them are speaking. I mean, you could say maybe I should have gone there, but I didn't have a seat at the high table. You know, when the, when the, the president of COP28 spoke, he wasn't followed up by a climate scientist who actually tried to inform everybody about the dangers of going beyond 1.5 degrees mm. C. That's my issue, is that my discipline, climate science, has not been able to communicate to the public that this is a really crucial moment in human history and hasn't been able to communicate to business leaders and governments. We have all the solutions available to us, but if we don't act, and we really need to act in the next 10 years, that's the real interesting thing about that. It's not about, oh, future generations. It's the next 10 years. I would actually state it's the next six years. Or maybe 10 years ago. Well, by the end of this decade. (laughs) So it's all within our working lifespans. We're talking with Ben Horton, the uh, director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore at NTU about COP28 and what's been happening there. Um, You know, every time we talk, there's there's this balance, this juxtaposition in our discussion between we can still do something and – you know, this is the dire consequence if we don't. And I, I, I heard a report yesterday or the day before. It said something like we're already at 1.3 degrees mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and 1.5 mm-hmm. is like a year or two away. Like yeah. it's coming quick, like oh, really well, quick, right? Well, you know. Um, is, that, is that accurate? Yeah, but I mean if you, if you really dial it down in uh, September and October of 2023 and we'll wait to see what happens in November, we're already above 1.5. We'd cross that threshold. Yeah. So the importance is that for these 
tipping points to come into effect, you need to stay above 1.5 degrees C for decades, so maybe 10, 20 years. We don't really know how long, but we're above it. And that should scare everybody because Singapore, for example, a third of its land area is only one metre above the highest tides. If you go above 1.5 degrees C, the West Antarctic ice sheet goes, that's five metres of sea level. That's the end of Singapore. Singapore may be able to build Long, um, Long Island. That's only a small section of Singapore. What are we going to do? Wall the whole of Singapore? What about the rest of the world? What did COVID teach us? You can't be an island for very long. Mm-hmm. You've got to engage. So it's about urgency. Um, but we have all the solutions in place. We just need to have the political will. Mm. And how do you get political will? That's education to the public and making making sure that you want these changes. And if you get the changes in the politicians, you hold them to account. So if we look at the UK... So the UK, you can actually feel somewhat good about the UK in terms of if you look at how it's transitioned off energy. So the United Kingdom, I'm British. I mean, you know, its development out of the Industrial Revolution was based on what? Coal. Mm. Then in the 70s and 80s, they discovered North Sea oil. Mm. But in 2022... The largest single form, largest single source of energy for every single person in the United Kingdom was renewables. Mm. Over 40% of their energy was from renewables. That's despite Sunak, Truss, Johnson, Mm. because the market drove it, because solar and wind are cheaper than coal, oil and gas. So in some ways, the market will decide so, but we need to catalyze it but if you look at the uk 40 percent renewables 15 years or so ago two or three percent yeah our costs of renewals have dropped and one of the good things about cop 28 but it's driven by the market is that they're going to they've they've stated that they will triple the amount of renewable energy used by 2030 and that's what the scientists want what we don't have is the reduction in fossil fuels. Mm. They're talking about, yeah, we'll do renewables. Well, what about the fossil fuels? The scientists want to phase out. The Mm. politicians are talking about this word abated. And I'm sure it's lost on most of your listeners what abated fossil fuel phase out means. So they're talking about we will only phase out fossil fuels that are abated, i.e. the ones that can be balanced by nature-based solutions or carbon capture and storage. Carbon capture and storage we don't do. I mean, we, we, we burn a million more times carbon than we sequester into the ground. So we scientists want that abated word removed. Just phase out fossil fuels and put a timeline onto it. Mm, okay? Mm. Um, But will scientists be listened to? No, because they're not there. Why? Because they weren't given a a seat at the highest table. So the depressing, if I'm hearing it right, news that I'm getting from you is a little bit of a contradiction. You said climate scientists need to do more to get their word out there. But yet education is everywhere. Awareness is everywhere. The good work you're doing in Singapore and across the world. So it's not really that. You say politicians, there needs to be a political will. But ultimately, the message I'm hearing, the depressing message, as always, it's going to come down to dollars and cents. It's going to be financial, isn't it? If they can see a way to make a dollar for the renew- to transition to renewables and other green technologies, that's the only thing we've got to rely on. Good old-fashioned depressing capitalism. Is that right or wrong? Well, it's not a simple solution, is it, climate change? No, of course I mean, not. You know, again, 
we have the solutions within us. Um, we have to have um, the, the will, will to right? do it. Yeah. Um, we can think about climate change in a very depressing manner, and that you've, we've only and, and and be anxious that we've only got ten years, or we can think about this that this is such an amazing opportunity. We can be the generation that saves the planet. We can be the generation that makes the difference because it is about the individual. It's about your lifestyle, consumer choices, who you vote for, where you travel, how you eat, how healthy you are. It's all about the individual. And we have the ability to change it. I think a lot of it, and I'm about to say this, I work in a university, I work in a brilliant university at Nanyang Technological University. We educate every single student on sustainability now. We have a core curriculum. So every single student at NTU, whether they go into medicine, they go into law, they go into business, they're in the humanities, they're all educated on how the world works. So when they go off and have their job, they have this skill set embedded within them. Mm. And that's the first time that's ever happened. So there are all these positive steps. My concern is that we'll be too late. Mm. You know, by the, the time they're in positions of well, power. The bit, yeah, by the time. Makers. Yeah. So that's yeah. why it looks at our sort of generation. And mm. that's why, again, I spent my time during COP talking to the leaders of Volvo, H&M, you know, Wallenberg, because they're the people it who can really change. Yeah. You know, we have conversations with other manufacturers that are very interested, again, capitalism, but they're thinking, well, if we can make our products carbon neutral, the youth, the consumer, are going to buy them. Mm. You have to find people who aren't doing it to meet sustainability development goals or ESG goals. It's because they want to do that. You too, because you keep on inviting me, know that the voice has to go out. Mm. I would disagree with you. People do know about climate change, but they're completely lost on the urgency. Mm. My, you know, I've spent most of my career talking to a mirror, talking mm. to other scientists, when you're young in academia, that's what you do. Mm. You're not exposed to, like, how do you communicate to the public? How do you com communicate to the media? How do you communicate to kids? And, and that's what's got to change. Mm -hmm. We've got to be able to... So it's really... I mean, your roles are key because you've been trained in how to take complex science or any type of complex data, um, be it about politicians and celebrities, golf courses or climate change, and how to get that in the public interest yeah. and that's what's got to change and you've got to be critical you mm. have to be critical because otherwise you know greed and corruption is going to win Ben, we do have to leave it there but thanks as always for coming in and chatting with us and uh, we're all looking forward to hopefully some at least some bright shoots coming out of uh, cop 28 uh, maybe maybe there'll be some some bright lights somewhere huh? oh i think there will be and then what we have to do is hold people to account yeah. And that includes the Singaporean government. Yeah. Singapore talks a very good, um, very strong words on the Green Plan. So we need to hold Singapore to account. What's its carbon footprint this year? What's its carbon footprint next year? What's it going to be at 2030? We need to see the reduction in the carbon footprint here in Singapore. It has a responsibility, it has a risk because of all the threats it has of rainfall, temperature, sea level rise, humidity. But it has a responsibility. It's the only developed nation 
in Southeast Asia that has the GDP capable of actually adapting and mitigating to climate change. In NUS and NTU, it has the only two world-class universities in Southeast Asia, indeed in the whole of the tropics. You've got biodiversity hotspots in the ocean and the land here. We have a great responsibility Mm. as well as a great ability. I mean, I came to Singapore because I thought that if Singapore can't solve the climate problem with its stable government, multicultural, multinational, all these business leaders, being a country that's so susceptible, then I didn't think any city on the planet would. Hmm. So it's like, watch this space. We have to hold the government accountable. The population needs to want this to happen. The Long Island... That's utopia. That's if we slow down climate change. You will have these, you know, these polders being built out into the oceans with a freshwater reservoir and, you know, parkland. That's utopia if you slow down climate change. The other option isn't worth thinking about. A dystopian future. That's tough. Professor Ben Horton, director of the Earth Observatory in Singapore at NTU. Thanks. Come on again, will you? Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.